be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love's feasts, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all to convict the ungodly and all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, it is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others showing mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word this morning, I pray that you would cause your spirit to open our ears and open our hearts so that we can be a changed people that we can walk out of here with your spirit's conviction in our lives, God, to change 
people around us to take the gospel to the end of our street and ultimately to the, to the ends of the nations. And I pray that as the word is proclaimed that you would give Pastor Toby the boldness and the conviction and the power to preach your word for what it says. And God, we know that we are totally dependent on you to do these things, so we ask and we trust that you will accomplish everything that you desire. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This, but uh, for our open house, uh, that's not just for members. That's if you've been attending, this is your first time, and you'd like to come by and be part of that open house, you are more than welcome uh, to do so uh, to get that information. Uh, you can just call the church office, and uh, Debbie will help you get there if you need help. I also just wanted to briefly mention uh, you, you may have noticed or you may not have, that there are a couple of cameras mounted to the wall, and you may or may not know that right now we are, we, we stream, we've begun streaming our services live uh, on Facebook and on YouTube, and then after this, they get pared down to just the scripture reading and the sermon. I was talking with uh, Pastor Lockwood, uh, if you're new to us, he's a retired pastor, he served here for 25 years was talking with him, and he was. Uh, this was very exciting to him. It was like the new wave of radio, right? Get it? This, is, this is the place to go. He was on the radio for many years, and this was the new uh, way. He was very uh, glad that uh, we are venturing out that way. So if something is particularly encouraging to you, I would just encourage you to share it with others, with those that you think uh, it might encourage as well. Uh, if you're not into video, you'd rather not watch a video while you drive, and you'd rather listen to the audio, uh, you can do that on SoundCloud or on iTunes, uh, either one. But I just wanted to mention that those are all ways uh, that these things are accessible. It was uh, April 11th, 2004. I am serving as a youth pastor up in Grant County. Susan and I have two small children We've only recently found out that we have a third on the way, which prompted the ever-parental question, you do know how that happens, don't you? Well, little did my parents know we would only be halfway to the finish line of having children. It was Easter Sunday morning, uh, normal Easter by all accounts, Um, but the next day everything would change. It began as any normal Monday would. I did some planning for that Wednesday night's youth group. I did some work toward our summer camp. I did some other normal Monday uh, types of things. But that evening, I got a phone call. I was on my way home thinking, well, what will next Sunday hold? You know, it's the Sunday after Easter, so probably attendance will be down Uh, because all the influx of Easter visitors uh, will have uh, gone back to whatever it is they normally do on Sunday morning. But I get a phone call that night from one of the other pastors on staff, and he says, I am to come to his house immediately because there is something the staff needs to discuss, and he would say no more. I didn't know what to think, so I call a friend of mine, a mentor, and I said, "Um, what should I expect here? And he answered with only two words, something horrible. 
he's right. I arrive at my friend's house to find the church treasurer and every other pastoral staff member in his living room. The entire staff, that is, with the exception of our senior pastor, Ron. Over the next few hours, Ron's recently uncovered sin is laid out before us, some by the treasurer and some by another pastor on staff, and we are all in shock, as you might imagine. The next day, Tuesday morning, the entire pastoral staff walks into Ron's office. He sees us, he sees the solemn look on our face. And he seems to know why we are there. He removes his glasses, he puts his face in his hands, and we lay out for him what was laid out for us the night before and ask the question, is it true? And all he could say was yes. His sin requires immediate resignation, something that he balks at. He wants to just confess and be restored and keep serving as he is. And we disagree. We go round and round about this. And after several minutes, I look at this senior pastor, I look at my senior pastor, I look at my friend, and I say, either you will resign or all of us will resign. He finally agrees, and he left the office, leaves the office to go home and tell his wife. From that point, the pastoral staff weeps and prays and tries to piece together how exactly we are going to handle this. The situation is critical. The church obviously has no clue what has just been uncovered. It doesn't understand the crucial nature of this moment, but we do. This will be no normal week. What are we going to do next Sunday? And it's as we're asking this question wondering what are we going to do, that all of my brothers turned to me, 29-year-old me, and they all agree, you will preach. So my week changed. After a midweek members meeting went completely sideways on us, I'm convinced that this cannot be an ordinary Sunday. I simply just can't preach. The pain and the need are too acute. I can't just pick up the series where the pastor who has just resigned left off and carry on. The need and the pain are severe and acute. I need a text for the moment. I need a message, a sermon for the moment. And the Lord comes to my aid so that on Sunday, April the 18th, 2004, I stood and preached Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The need of the moment called for a message of the moment, a call for the church to be faithful rather than to fall apart. And it's this kind of crucial need, this kind of significant call that we find in Jude's letter. Nothing is just normal here. 
Listen to what he says, verses 3 and 4, which are our text for today. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is a call. This is a call to action, to contend for the faith. And in contending for the faith, to contend for the life of the church. Jude says, in essence... Christians must contend for the faith. Christians must contend for the faith. First of all, contending for the faith is urgent. Now, I use that word urgent intentionally. It speaks of something that presses on us, that demands our attention, that will not let us simply put it to the side. That's the tone of what Jude writes here. We can't put off contending. We, we can't wait until we have spare time. We can't wait until we have extra energy. We must contend now. And that's what he writes. I, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you. So just picture Jude. Okay, He's made his cup of tea. He goes into the study. He tells his family he's not to be disturbed. He has a very important letter to write. So he sits down at his desk, very excited and very eager. His mind fills with thoughts of Christ's death and resurrection, of our justification and its glory, of the love of God and adoption, of our rescue from hell, of the hope of heaven, of all of the things that bind us together as Christians. And all he wants to do is get it down on paper. He just wants to write it, and he wants to send it off with a smile on his face, and he wants to encourage these brothers and sisters, and he wants to build them up in the faith. So he sips his cup of tea, and he prays for God's help, and he takes up his pen, and he begins to write, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And he's five to six paragraphs in when a knock comes at the door. There's news from abroad, from the church that Jude's writing to. His wife lets in a messenger who gives the update. Certain people have wormed their way into the church. That's what he writes in verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Disdain drips from the page. Certain people intruders. They've gained influence, and they're twisting the truth. We'll see how in just a bit. But they're disruptive, distracting, disorderly, dissatisfied with the gospel that the apostles have taught, devoid of the Spirit, and the church is on the brink of division. Well, this news changes everything for Jude. Righteous anger wells up in him. And the half-written letter that he's got in front of him just simply won't do. The danger is too grave. Maybe he'll send that one later, but for now they need another letter. They need this letter. 
That's what Jude means here. I was eager, very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Though that was true, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. Now just think about this. We are a people who believes that God has inspired every single word of the Bible. Just think about how God has orchestrated this moment to get this letter to these people, to our canon of Scripture. Jude wants to write, so he sits down to write. And God, in His providential wisdom, changes everything so that we don't have the letter that Jude meant to write. We have the letter that Jude writes. Why? Because God cares so much for His church that He wants this letter to get to them. He wants this letter to get to us to address this need. And so that as Jude writes, the Bible teaches us that as Jude writes, the Holy Spirit is carrying him along. And these words are actually what God wants to say. They are God's words, but they came through what Jude might label an interruption. Now, just as an aside, have you ever thought about the fact that God may simply be at work in the interruptions in your life? You get quite annoyed with interruptions. You have your day planned out. You have everything that you're going to do on your to-do list. And all of a sudden, some child needs more attention than maybe you had expected that day. Someone turns up sick in the household. A neighbor knocks on the door with a great need. A phone call comes and changes everything. Have you ever considered that God in His kindness is not only teaching you that He works through interruptions, but He is teaching you that your life is not your own? Our lives are not our own. And so when the interruption comes, we can either respond in unbelief and kick back and grumble and complain and pout and say, yes, I will help. It's a real blessing when you do that and when I do that. We can simply pause in the midst of that interruption and say, Lord, you're doing something that I did not expect in this very moment. Help me to honor you. God is working through Jude's interruption. This interruption is urgent. The call to contend is urgent. The intruders are already inside the church. The termites are already in the walls. So contend now. Contend here speaks of a military battle or an athletic competition, a wrestling match. Uh, This kind of contending happened in my house growing up regularly. As my brother and I would get off the bus and we would race to the house and the contending would begin. We would wrestle quite literally, not like we would talk back and forth. We would wrestle until one of us was pinned to determine who got control of the television remote. Every, I mean, I just remember so many of those days. Contend. But what Jude is calling us to is to contend for something 
infinitely more precious than anything we might contend for in this life. Something that is far more valuable. Something that is eternally significant. What Jude is saying is someone is going to have control of the teaching of the church. It is up for grabs. And there's no time for relaxing. There's no time for waiting. There's no time to see how things develop, quite frankly. Jude says, in effect, take hold of these meddlers and pin them to the ground. Don't let them up. Get them out. It's urgent. Contend. Although I had wanted to write this kind of letter, I'm going to write this one. It's urgent, but it's not just urgent. It's important. Why? Because we contend for the faith. That's the second thing to notice. Contending for the faith is important. It's urgent because the intruders are already there. It's important because we're contending for the faith. Now here, faith does not simply mean belief, believing. It doesn't simply mean trusting in Jesus. It's the faith. It's the body of truth that defines Christianity. It's truth about God and about man and about sin and Christ and the gospel and repentance and faith and the Christian life and all of it. It's the faith. It's the faith that Paul preached once he was converted. He says so. Uh, it, it was said of him, actually, and he reports it in Galatians 1, that people, used, that people said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Contending for the faith is important. Why? Because if you don't have the faith in hand... If the truth of the Christian faith is not in hand, if you don't have a grip on the faith, you don't have a grip on Jesus. If you believe wrong things about God and man and sin and judgment and the cross and Christ, you don't have a grip on Christ Himself. We may have a grip on our own version of Jesus, but we don't have a grip on the biblical Jesus. We cannot deny the central truths of the Christian faith and turn around and call ourselves Christians. This is what many in the, most, in, in the liberal and mainstream churches of our day are doing. They will deny central tenets of the Christian faith and call themselves Christian. To be a Christian is not to adopt a particular kind of morality. To be Christian is not simply to do good to neighbor. To be Christian is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His atonement on the cross and His resurrection from the dead and our complete hopelessness apart from Him. And it is to repent and turn to Him in faith, claiming our only merits in His life, death, and resurrection. This is Christianity. The God who judges sends His Son to be judged on our behalf that we might escape from judgment and be embraced by the judge as our Holy Father. That is 
There is no way to be saved, you see, apart from a grip on the actual faith. We can't just use Jesus' name as if it is a code word. As if I just mention the name of Jesus, that's all that matters. There's a song that I can't quote on Christian radio that basically says, whatever situation you're in, just say the name of Jesus. Well, there's a problem with that. What Jesus are you talking about? What are you calling on Jesus to do? His name is actually not a magical word that you can just say and things happen. The name of Jesus, biblically speaking, is all that is tied up with who He is and what He has done for us. And so if we don't have the faith, we don't have the Christ who brings us the salvation. And this is God's plan that He has given us in the Bible, that that we're made in the image of God and have rebelled against Him and we're liable to judgment, but God has sent Jesus to live and to die in our place so that if we turn from sin and trust in Him, we're forgiven and made right. In a very real sense, this is the only message the church has. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the only thing we can truly offer you. You need to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And any member of this church would love to talk to you about that after the service. I would love to talk to you about that after the service, about what it means to know Jesus and to understand who He is and why He came and what He's done for us and what it means to turn from our sin and follow Him. But if we don't have the real Jesus, we don't have the real message. So the importance of this message drives Jude's call to contend. And actually Jude gets more specific than just this implication that I have drawn. He tells us why we must contend and he tells us why we must not lose. We must contend... First of all, because the faith is definitive and not debatable. We must contend. It is important that we contend because the faith is definitive, not debatable. Jude says it is the faith once for all delivered. There's a note of finality to that. Conclusion. You remember learning to write essays in high school, right? You would, your teacher would want you to turn in the first draft and you write the first draft, maybe some of us 10 minutes before class started, but we'd write the first draft of this essay and we would hand it in. And uh, in love and educational uh, uh, efforts, the teacher would rip it apart with his or her red pen, right? You know, and this is, this is you can't end a preposition with. You can't end a sentence with. Can't do that. This is wrong. This is wrong. You don't have a transition. You need this. You need that. I don't even see the whole point of this essay. Right? So, the faith is not like a first draft. Where God has given us the Bible and we come along with our red pens. And we say, well, this, this, is, this is not relevant This is no good. We won't have any of this. This infringes upon my personal autonomy. I'm not going to believe this. This all has to be changed. 
Paul, this sentence is way too long, make it shorter. The Bible is not a first draft, brothers and sisters. It's the only draft. This is it. The New Testament speaks this same way about the death of Jesus in this kind of once-for-all language. It's in Hebrews 9. Christ died once for all, and it's appointed once for men to die. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The finality with which we think about the atonement of Jesus is the finality with which we must think about the teaching of Jesus, the faith. It's definitive, not debatable. Also, it's important that we contend because it's God's, not ours. He says it's the the faith once for all delivered to us. Other translations say entrusted. It's the word for handing over something to another person. It's a word for of stewardship. Even the Apostle Paul makes it clear that his message is not primarily his. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for I delivered, there's the same word, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Galatians 1 says he received it from the Lord Jesus himself. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The apostles received the faith from Jesus Christ. They pass it on to the church in their preaching, in their writing. And each generation of the church passes on the same truth to the next generation. So we must contend for the faith because it's not ultimately ours. It's ultimately God's. We need to understand this because when a Christian contends for the faith by sharing the gospel, by standing for biblical morality, by correcting errors, by explaining the Bible's position on one thing or another, when this happens, the Christian is not contending for his or her own opinion. We contend for something far greater, far more permanent, far more precious. We contend for the faith that has been handed to us, a treasure of truth held in our disposable clay hands. And all we must do, what we must do in our clay hands is to hold on to this precious treasure and make sure to pass it on to the next clay hand still intact. That's why we must contend. It's not ours. Do you remember the first time you handed your child like a breakable plate and said, carry this to, you know, somewhere, and you hand it to them and you're like, please make it, please make it, please make it, please make it. And do you remember the first time they didn't make it? Friends, we must make it. We must take the treasure and pass it on. That's why we must contend. Why, why must we not lose? Why, we, why must we hold our ground? Why must the church not adopt the ways of these intruders? Why must we overtake them with the truth? Well, the main thing is this. 
False teaching brings condemnation. Look at verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. The condemnation of those who corrupt the faith is certain. From the beginning, with the words of the serpent corrupting the faith, all throughout the Scriptures, those who teach false teaching, who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, who prophesy falsely, they all face certain condemnation. And this crew is no different. Their condemnation is set in stone. It's not going anywhere. And those who follow in their footsteps will share the same fate, quite frankly. Now, when he says this condemnation, it is a particular condemnation, one that he's going to lay out more in detail afterward. So we won't go into that now, just to say it's coming. But to say promoting and believing false teaching leads to this con- leads to condemnation, period. What, and the rest of verse 4, if you will, shows us the reverberating effects of what it means to believe false teaching. What does it look like when someone is a false teacher? What does it look like when someone believes false teaching? Well, first of all, you see ungodliness of life. That's what he says. He says they are ungodly People. They may have parroted Christian phrases, they may have led Christian songs, but they are ungodly. They may have written books sold in Christian bookstores. They may have organized conferences where thousands of people gathered to hear them speak, but they are ungodly, meaning they live as if God doesn't exist. They may proclaim that He does, but they practice as if He doesn't. They live as if His judgment is not real. They live as if they can determine their own way of living. This isn't, this isn't a couple of people sitting over a cup of coffee, right? This is not a philosophical debate that Jude is addressing. It's not a philosophical atheism. It's a practical atheism. They are ungodly people. Also... Part of this ungodliness, but part of what leads to condemnation, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, a perversion of truth. Rather than understanding God's grace rightly as that which frees us from sin, they believe and teach and live as if the grace of God frees us to sin. But we shouldn't be confused about this. Titus is very clear. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace is not a pass to sin. God's grace is the power to pass on sin, to say no to that which is ungodly, to that which flows out of worldly passions, and to say yes to that which honors Christ, self-control, upright, godly living. These false teachers are 
basically just walk around thinking, hey, you know what? We got grace. Grace is no matter what, you know? I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? Grace means no matter what. So let's see how much no matter what we can fill up. I mean, there's no condemnation. I got grace. So they pervert the grace of God into a licensed immorality, into sensuality, into licentiousness. These, this words for sensuality, licentiousness, it is especially focused in the area of sexual pleasure and greed. But in general terms, they're what we would call antinomian. Anti, against, namas, law, against the law, antinomian. They are under the assumption that the commands of God are not really relevant to them because, hey, we got grace. We can do whatever. Now, it doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to see examples of this in our own culture, does it? It doesn't take a... I don't, you don't have to sit and think really hard about examples of this. We can think about them in a number of places. I'm just going to mention two. One is general and one is specific. In general, what I want to talk about is this kind of trend um, it, it, within Christian culture that we must, quote-unquote, keep it real. Okay? Now, I think what people are trying to do, what, what the good thing would be is to push back on hypocrisy, right, and keep it real. However, people who typically use this and they're sitting around and they're confessing, I'm just keeping it real, I'm just keeping it real, I'm just keeping it real, and they're just listing all their sins out there and they just say, I'm just keeping it real. What they typically don't mean is that we need to stop pretending we don't sin. Brothers and sisters, if, you're, if you pretend in any way that you do not sin, this is the camp of the Pharisee and not the disciple. But that's not typically what is meant. It's not meant we need to stop pretending we don't sin, we need to be honest about it so that we can confess, so that we can repent, so that we can change. That is real. That's what real means. What is often meant in those circles by keeping it real, it's like a force field that when I say this, I'm just keeping it real, so, but let's not make this big deal out of sin. Let's not talk about it like it's something bigger than it is because we're all sinners. I sin, you sin, we sin, you know, like the old Dr. Pepper commercials, right? I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. Well, you know you're a pepper too. I mean, that's, that's, that's how it goes, and we say, well, we all sin, but let's not be those people who get so tied up into knots over sin, who get so serious about it. I mean, come on, just, just accept it. None of us are perfect people. Let's just laugh at each other's sin, and let's go on. Friends, that is turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. Anytime we would seek to diminish the sinfulness of sin... By talking about grace, that's a perversion. Secondly, a more specific example is, quite frankly, the rampant acceptance of homosexuality in the church today. 
Now, some deny that homosexuality is sinful at all. And for most people, that's easy to see as a denial of biblical truth. But there is a sneakier argument that is making its way, and maybe it has made its way to your ear. The argument goes like this. Homosexual activity is sinful, but homosexual desires are not. As long as you don't act on the desire, there's no sin. Now, some of you may have heard this, and some of you may even be tempted to buy into it. And so, let me help you think in different terms about the same kind of logic. Let's imagine a man comes home from work this week, and he says, Sweetie, I need to tell you something. There's a new woman at work. She's been there a few weeks, and she is really attractive. I think about her all the time. I dream about her. I imagine what it might be like to be with her. I lust after her. But I want you to know I'll never act on it. Now seriously, can you imagine a whole lot of wives going, whew, he's not going to act on it. No, 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 no. Look, some in our culture who do not have Jesus would say, well, yeah, you know, that's just men. Men just do that. That's even, even the wife who is not completely mortified by this should know Jesus is. Because Jesus says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Apparently, the desires of my heart determine whether I'm acting and thinking and being sinful or not. And it's not just with regard to homosexuality. When a man and a wife come into the office, and I'm going to counsel them, and this man has been physically violent with his wife, and he has stopped. We would all be thankful that that man has stopped being physically violent, wouldn't we? I mean, wouldn't you be thankful for that? Yes. Is that enough that his explosive anger is no longer let out in hitting his wife or throwing things at his wife? No, it's not. It's not. It's not. Because he still has this rage of sinful anger in him. I tell you, even the person who is angry in his heart, who hates his brother in his heart, they're liable to hell. It's not enough. It's not enough to not act on the desire. That may be a good first step in the sanctification process, to stop hurting others with my sin. But it is not what it means to be Christ-like. When you start to doubt whether those desires can really be there or not, you just have to think, what does it mean to be like Jesus? Jesus never lusted after a woman. Never. 
because by his own teaching he would have been guilty of adultery in his heart. This is the sneakier version of the perversion of grace. That I can desire whatever I want so long as I don't act outwardly in a sinful way. So long as I don't punch my coworker, it doesn't matter that all I really want to do is punch my coworker. That's a lie. It's a lie. And that's just two examples. Many more could be given. I mean, in general, dear Christian, anytime you find yourself thinking something like, I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me. That is perverting the grace of God into a license to do what you want. It is presuming on the kindness of God. Kindness which is meant to lead us to repentance, not deeper into rebellion. So this false teaching, believing it, promoting it, this false teaching that leads to condemnation looks like ungodliness of life, perversion of truth, and, and also a denial of Jesus. Not a verbal denial, not some YouTube video with somebody denying Jesus is Lord. But just think about it. Ungodliness of life and perversion of the truth essentially adds up to this, that no matter what I say with my mouth, my life is screaming that Jesus is not Lord. He does not have authority over every bit of my life. I will not obey Him. And to think that it is simply sufficient to just speak with our mouths and not actually live, we need to go back to the words of Jesus Himself in Matthew 7. No one who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not one who simply professes lordship, but the one who actually is submissive to lordship. Dear friends, we must not lose the fight against false teaching because false teaching promotes ungodliness of life, perversion of the truth, the denial of Jesus, which leads to the condemnation of all who walk that road. This is why Paul, on the flip side, told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine, for by it you will save both yourself and your hearers. And on, Jude is on the other side of that coin, watch Watch life and doctrine, because if you don't, you will condemn both yourself and your hearers. Christians must contend for the faith. We can't simply let the wrong understandings of Jesus go because our friend says they're a Christian. We can't let truth be distorted because someone says, I believe in God, and we see that as, well, you know, that's good, so we just have different understandings. 
Well, there are some things that we have different understandings are, but the deity of Christ cannot be one of them. The atonement of the cross cannot be one of them. The resurrection from the dead cannot be one of them. Final judgment cannot be one of them. The necessity of repentance and faith cannot be one of them. We must contend for the faith. Now, Jude is not calling us to be contentious people. You understand? He's not calling us to be people who just love to argue. I love a good fight, and if I don't walk into one, I'll pick one. I mean, he is not, that is not what Jude is calling us to do, is just find something somewhere and start swinging at it. What he's calling us to do is to have our eyes open to the landscape of doctrine where we are, where the battle lines are already drawn, where the enemy is already encroaching on territory in the church, where the greatest spiritual dangers appear. And he calls us to not shrink back, but to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and to contend for the faith. We must do it, and we must not lose. Because the future of this church depends on it. You understand? In the scope of eternity, my charisma or anybody else's charisma or cleverness or outlining or homiletics or uh, capacities in communication or lack of capacities in communication don't matter a hill of beans so much as the content of what comes from this pulpit, the content of what comes out of every Sunday school teacher's mouth. Do not think that just be, I just lead a small group. Dear friend, you have to fight for the faith. Well, I just lead a women's Bible study. It's not even at this church. Well, you better fight for the faith wherever it is. I just teach preschoolers. You better fight for the foundation of their faith that they will carry the rest of their lives. The future of this church depends on it. The question that remains is will you? Will you? Will you fight to know the truth? Will you fight to love the truth? Will you fight to believe the truth? Will you fight to pass on the truth once handed to us? Will you fight to hold that treasure with great intensity and make sure that it gets to the next We must. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we...
pray that you will sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We pray that we would not be a people who compromise your truth for the sake of convenience, for the sake of acceptance by others, for the sake of a perceived uh, growing church, for the sake of escaping opposition. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who contend for the faith. Keep us by your grace from being those who proclaim truths that we don't actually believe. Keep us by your grace from proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus without living under the Lordship of Jesus. Keep us from thinking we can do whatever it is we please in our marriages, whatever it is we please in our parenting, whatever it is we please in our workplace, whatever it is that we please in our relationships because we're under grace. Keep us from such a mindset and rather instill in us the conviction that your grace will train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. Make us a congregation self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. We pray for this because without the truth, our spiritual lives are not really built. We pray for this because without the truth, the lost will not have the true message of Jesus to believe and be saved. We pray for this because the glory of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is on the line. Help us to glorify you by contending for the faith to shine like stars in a dark and twisted generation. And we pray all of it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.